0: Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 11 and 26 through 43 as we do continue on in the book of Kings, 1 Kings. As you know, this was originally one book, which was then split into two parts. And one of the things that we need to remember as we look through the book of Kings is while it details uh, the beginning of of the kings uh, of uh, in the line of David and Judah. It also tells us about the kings of the divided kingdom and in the north in Israel. We're going to see now the beginnings of that division taking form because of, the, uh, because of the sin of Solomon, frankly. One of the things that we're going to see throughout our study of first kings is the inadequacy of any human king. The fact that none of them can be the kind of leaders for their people that they truly need, and certainly none of them can be as spiritually pure as they need. And none of them can govern them and their enemies into eternity. And that's why we needed great David's greater son, not Solomon, but one far greater than Solomon, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you will see in the inadequacies of even the greatest of of, uh, Israel's kings, you will see not only their need, but our need for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But before we turn our attention to his word, let us turn our attention to him and ask for his blessing. Sovereign Lord, I do now pray that you would be with with us all as we turn to your word. And me in particular, I pray we divide it aright. Lord, clarify my thoughts. Help me, O Lord, to make clear your will to your people. We know this book was not given merely to a people thousands of years ago, returning from exile to strengthen them and to warn them and to tell them about the coming of the Messiah. But Lord, it was given to us to show us our need and the inadequacy of any political ruler, Lord, any civil magistrate. While they, they serve a purpose, we know they're ordained by you. They ultimately, they can't be Jesus to us. And when we put our faith in kings, we ultimately, we misplace it. Lord, mere men will always fail us. Christ never will. Help us to remember that as we read his word we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to fend off the devil, to be actively listening, Lord, to remember that worship is not a spectator sport. It requires our engagement. I pray we would be thinking and struggling. And I pray, Lord, that we would be applying these things. And Lord, please, do that work in our heart that needs to be done. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings 11, and I'll be reading verses 26 through 43. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord, inspired and inerrant in everything that it teaches. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, uh, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you, that ye shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the, uh, the god rather of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David." However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, 10 tribes. And to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight to keep my, command, my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever." Solomon, therefore, sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, that's the the last line in the reign of Solomon we just read there. Then Solomon rested with his father. Solomon died. He went the way of all flesh. And he was buried with his father, David, and presumably with the others in the house of Jesse who were buried in Jerusalem or thereabouts. So we come to the end of the reign of Solomon, son of David. This is a king, you remember, who started amazingly well. The Lord blessed him as no other king on earth. The Lord gave him wisdom. The Lord gave him riches. The Lord loved him. And yet what happened? He started well, and then he died very well very poorly. He didn't, his death was not uh, tragic. He didn't die in battle like Saul did, being killed by, the, or killed by his own hand, just as the enemies of the Lord were about to overcome him. But he did die having apostatized, in many senses, having gone away from the worship of the Lord, having built, uh, as we heard here, places of worship for false gods, and he died at the age of 60. Now, the question I I've always was asking myself the first few times that I went through the Bible as a, as a young Christian uh, and I asked other people was, was simple, was, was Solomon saved? Was Solomon saved? Did, did he die a saved man? Did he go to heaven? I, I mean, yes, he, he started very well, didn't he? But uh, by the end of his life, he was favoring his many foreign wives, a thousand wives and concubines, and building all of these temples to false gods, presumably offering up sacrifices to them, in some cases even infant children, he worshipped with his foreign wives. What, what happened to his heart? What happened to Solomon's heart during the reign of Solomon? Because the heart of the matter, to use the old phrase, is the matter of the heart. It's odd that I would be dwelling on the matter of the heart this week. Uh, since this week, I, I had um, an echocardiogram uh, for the first time. It's, it's wonderful. As, it just as a preview of coming attractions. As you get older, you get to encounter amazing medical equipment for the first time if uh, you, you stay on this side of existence and more and more of it. Uh, I had never uh, experienced that before. Um, but the echocardiogram is kind of like a sonogram for the heart. I had the wonderful experience of seeing my children in my wife's womb where they were being fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together there, seeing the outlines and the features. And then I went through the rather disconcerting experience of seeing my own heart on a monitor uh, before me just to the left. Um, And I was watching all of the the structures. It's kind of an awful fascination, a terrified fascination, because I'm like... If I turn away, does it stop? No, but, but you, you, you watch, and you see all these structures working as he's moving around with the, uh, with the stylus and making pointers and stuff. You see the valves going and you can actually hear the, uh, the machine interpretation of the noises. and. You see little flaps going like this and, and so on. And um, you see the blood represented by flashing colors moving about inside the chambers of your heart and so on. That is really amazing and awesome and awful in the old sense of the word and, and terrifying. And I, I thought three things at, this, at the same time. The first thing, looking at my own heart, I thought what an amazing machine the Lord has made. This is an amazing thing. It's able to go for decades. Every part of it is dependent upon the others, and it all works in conformity to keep you upright and and moving around. And only somebody, it occurred to me as I was sitting there, only somebody willfully self-deceived could look at something complex like that and assume that it arose by chance. All of these parts interacting, and all of them fearfully and wonderfully made. And then the second thing that occurred to me, I admit was a little more abstract, but it was, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody came up with a machine that could tell you about the spiritual condition of the heart, in the same way that this machine tells you about the physical condition of the heart, it would make, uh, for instance, new member examinations so much easier. You know, if we could certainly sit there with you know running it over their heart and going, oh, stone, no. And I, I knew it. I, I sensed that probably was going to be the problem. But you could see whether it was stone or flesh, and you could detect the contents there. And see what was within the heart. Was it the the love of God flashing around in there? Or was it something darker? The love of other things? Now, if such a machine existed, a spiritual echocardiogram, if I could call it that, uh, what would it show if it was passed over your heart, friends? Let me ask you that question. What would it show? Would we see on the monitor stone or, or flesh, Would we see that 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 wonderful heart surgery that only the Lord can do? He speaks about in Ezekiel 36. Go home and read it. He says, I will take out your heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh. That's the, the process of regeneration, being born again, the process of giving new life. But more importantly than that, what would it show that you treasured in your heart? What are the things that are most important to you? What would it be? What are the things that give you the most joy? Because you can tell what people treasure by what they have joy in, what they what they love, what they pursue. What were the things that Solomon loved and, and gave him most joy? Well, initially... The amazing thing is we read that initially it was the Lord. We remember we read in 1 Kings 3.3, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David. But there we have a comma in the English translation and a rather ominous warning, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. We noted a long time ago when we were going through 1 Kings 3 That Solomon already had what has been described as an attitude of latitude. Well, I'll serve the Lord. I love the Lord, but I'm not going to serve him with great strictness. I'm not going to, you know, the Lord is going to give me a a lot or a little wiggle room to, to do my own thing and so on. And that attitude of latitude instead of an attitude of gratitude went and got larger and larger. And that's usually the way it is. Once we begin to allow ourselves room to sin... That room, we find, gets larger and larger. It's like the American debt. After a while, it's $33 and we're like, yeah, what's another trillion here? I've been sinning so very badly. It no longer worries me anymore. Why not add a little? It's just a little thing, and so on. Well, we know that if someone loves the Lord, however that happened, we know that ultimately the cause of their loving the Lord is because the Lord loved them and chose them. And so it was, we find with Solomon in 2 Samuel 12:24, we read, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. We remember Solomon's mother was Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Even as an infant, well, we know even before he was an infant, the Lord loved Solomon. And he sent word by the, name, by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. That was the name that Solomon was given. it means literally beloved of Jehovah. This was someone whom the Lord loved from the very beginning. And so Solomon's love was a result of having the love of God put in his heart. And we see, I just discussed it, how singularly blessed Solomon had been by Yahweh. He had been given the gift of wisdom, he had been given riches, he had been given peace as well. But what had happened? Instead of that love getting stronger and stronger, instead it had waned. He had allowed his first love to wane and he had begun to find his pleasure not in God, not in his worship, not in serving him. He had begun to find his pleasure in the things of the world. And we read in the beginning of this chapter, 1 Kings 11.1, 1, but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He gave himself no boundaries when it came to his appetite for women. He allowed it to increase, to go far beyond the borders of Israel. Wasn't, I mean, he wasn't supposed to have more than one wife to begin with, and yet he began to take wives well beyond those Israelites, first marrying a daughter of, of Pharaoh and then adding Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Hittites and so on. Something similar, we remember, had started to happen in the life of his father, David. You remember that? Uh, in 2 Samuel 11:1, 1, the uh, verses in 2 Samuel 11 start with this ominous note. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And that should be a warning note, because when the kings went out to battle, where, where should David have been? In battle. He should have gone out with his people. He should have been in the camp. But no, he stayed home in the palace. It's much nicer, sleeping in the wilderness. And they probably didn't even have camp cots at that point in time. It was a hard and lonely, and, and it's easier just to send Joab and to stay here. And how will I occupy my time? Well, I'll sleep during the day, and then I'll get up at night. And I'll wander the roof of the palace looking for trouble. And sure enough, I'll find it. What did he see? On a rooftop in the city, he saw the wife of another man. It turned out Uriah the Hittite, a lovely lady, uh, was bathing herself on the rooftop in the cool of the day. And, of course, he should have at that point, uh uh-oh, averted his eyes. But he didn't. He gazed longingly on her. Who's that woman? Well, he finds out that she's the wife of one of his mighty men. That should have been the end of the conversation right there again. But no. Bring her to me. And he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And then ultimately, you remember what happened. He has to kill Uriah the Hittite because this man is too faithful. He will not allow himself to enjoy the pleasures that the rest of the army of the Lord is not enjoying. And so David sends, by the hand of Joab, put this man in the thickest part of the battle so that he might be killed. And then I can pretend the child that's forming in her womb was his. Well... Ultimately, we know that um, he, he committed adultery and he committed a murder. And he sent, though, a prophet. The Lord is so gracious, isn't he? When we send, has this ever happened to you? I, I, it happens in my life uh, a lot. When I, I will do something sinful, uh, the Lord will, for the next week, remind me that I need to repent. Everything that I listen to will remind me I need to repent. If I have a grudge, if I have anger, if I have anything that shouldn't be in my heart, the Lord suddenly every single sermon will be pointed that I'm listening to. I'll start a book that I put down at random and it will speak exactly to the sin that I need to repent of at that point in time. I've often had people incidentally come up to me after the, uh, the sermon and be like, how did you know that I was struggling with that sin. I was like, I don't know that. I had no idea, but I know who did. The Holy Spirit. He does it with me as well, brother. Let's, let's talk about it. But that's the way it worked with David. God sent Nathan the prophet to him. He tells him this parable, and he tells him he'd sinned. And then what does David say? David's response at that point could have been very bad, couldn't it? He could have said, take Nathan, throw him in the dungeon, or just have him killed at that point. But he doesn't. what does he do? So David said to Nathan, we read in 2 Samuel 12, 13, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die." David repented of his sin. David put his faith once again in the promises of the Lord. He trusted in him. and because of what his greater Son, Jesus Christ, the, the desire of the nations would sometimes or someday do. In the future, he was forgiven for his sin. Now, the consequences of David's sin were dire. We remember he, he had to deal with uh, rebellion. He had to deal with, with constant uh, negative effects in his life. He was chastened, absolutely. But he returned to the Lord, and David dies as a watchword of devotion to the Lord and as a trophy of grace. We see in David evidence that there is no sin so great Nothing that we have done in the past that cannot be forgiven through the blood of Christ. If we will but return, if we will but repent, if we will but surrender to the will of the Lord and seek forgiveness. Not in our own righteousness, not in in deals that we dream up, but simply going back to the Lord. And because of that, that repentance that happened in the life of David, we're left behind this, uh, these amazing testimonials of grace. And I think perhaps one of the most, it's, it's still to this day my favorite psalm, Psalm 51. We hear David crying out, create in me a clean heart. This is Psalm "O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he, he utters these words that go through my mind whenever I am, I'm downcast because of, of just the sinful nature that I have. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Those of you who have been saved will remember, I hope you will remember, the moment. Perhaps it happened early in life, perhaps later in life. The moment when you came to faith in God. And how the weight of sin was taken off of your shoulders. And the immense joy knowing that not only were you not going to hell, but that you were now a child of God, no longer an orphan, but beloved. And just that that joy that filled your heart. I remember when when I was saved... Going from from the feeling of despair and conviction after running to Christ and then thinking to myself, what joy. But then thinking, I'm a Christian. I don't know how to be a Christian. But knowing that somehow deep down within me, the Lord would guide me. And he did. David sinned. But David repented. And he got off of that awful trail of sexual sin that he had been walking down. Solomon, however, seems to have multiplied sin upon sin upon sin until the Lord, as had been the case after Saul failed to obey his commands, he sends a prophet to illustrate a sermon. You remember there was that tearing also in the life of Saul. Samuel had been sent to Saul And Saul had taken hold of his garment because he had told him that the Lord was was taking away his kingdom because he had disobeyed him and he tore his garment. And he says, now the kingdom will be torn out of your hands and given to a man whose heart is the Lord's. And of course, that man was David. But... We are told here that the the tearing of the kingdom away, the northern kingdom, separating from the southern kingdom, would not happen during the lifetime of Solomon, but it would happen in the lifetime of his son. We're going to see what happened, therefore, in the time of Jeroboam because, uh, rather, Rehoboam, sorry, because of the sins of Solomon. So God sends a prophet, Ahijah, the Shilonite. He is sent to Jeroboam. Jeroboam, of course, is a servant of Solomon. He was a man who had been put over the forced laborers from the, the northern tribes, those are the tribes of Joseph. Increasingly, you're going to hear the ten northern tribes spoken of as Joseph, sometimes as Ephraim, because that was the, the first house of the kings of the northern kingdom. We know that, uh, that Jeroboam was an Ephraimite. Uh, God said in verse 11 of chapter 11 that he would tear the kingdom from Solomon and he would give it to his servant. And the servant that he gave it to is this man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He is the founder of the northern kingdom and its ruler for a very little while. His name means, may the people be great. Now, the life of Jeroboam, unfortunately, becomes synonymous with sin. Sin. We are going to see, and here I hope I'm not you know, ruining the story for anybody, unfortunately, he's going to lead the people into idolatry. And so walking in the ways of Jeroboam is going to become synonymous in the northern kingdom with practicing idolatry. Now, this was a man who had also been very blessed. We, the text would indicate to us that although he was the son of a widow, he was, he was smart, he was industrious, he, he was probably wealthy, he was a man of industry and valor and wealth and diligence, and he was obviously a good leader. And he was put in charge of the, the labor battalions in the north, the men of the northern tribes. But working with the northern tribes showed him also one of the downsides of of this kingdom of Solomon. Solomon had overworked the people. Solomon had overtaxed the people. The glory of the kingdom bore very, very heavy weight on the tribes of Israel. And he had seen the bitterness of these oppressed people. This will break open when it comes to the death of Solomon just before the accession of Rehoboam, just before he is coronated. The northern tribes are going to cry out and they're going to say, we are afflicted. We are serving with bitterness not with joy. We have hard labor. With hard labor and high taxes we have supported your father's opulent lifestyle. Now lighten our load and we will serve you and we'll see what how You guys probably already know the story, but how Rehoboam responds to that plea. But obviously, Jeroboam saw the affliction of his people, and he saw himself as a liberator. In that sense, he's kind of like Moses before regeneration, before Moses met uh, with God on uh, Mount Mount Sinai, thank you, at the uh, burning bush. And there, of course... He had been born into the house of Egypt. He'd been born a prince of Egypt. And he saw himself as a deliverer of his oppressed people. But he had started the rebellion early and without God's help. And and Jeroboam is going to be very like that. Now, what happened here, though, is that, as with Moses, God calls upon Jeroboam and he sets before him a covenant. He says, if you serve me, And if you are a good ruler, I will give you this kingdom. I'm not going to take away the southern kingdom entirely. There's going to be a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The southern kingdom will be ruled by the descendants of David. Now, that's very important. The Lord is going to say, I am not going to take away my grace and my mercy from the house of David entirely. And we know that the reason for that also is the fact that Jesus would come from the line of David. And so grace and mercy cannot be entirely taken away from from that particular line. There must be descendants. We're going to see as we go through Kings the very many ways that the devil tries to cut off the line of David, but he fails. But Jeroboam, nevertheless, he rebels. He flees to Egypt. He's given shelter by this this pharaoh Shishak, probably not the same pharaoh who was the father-in-law of Solomon, but nonetheless one who was willing to harbor those who were going to work against Israel. And through Ahijah, the Lord told Jeroboam that if you love me, and if you keep my commandments because you love me, then your kingdom will be firmly established. There is this possibility, hypothetically, of two God-fearing kingdoms. But both of them would have had to have worshipped in the only place where it was okay to worship, the only place on earth where sacrifices could legitimately be offered up To the Lord, and what was that place? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the temple. And we're going to see that doesn't fit with Jeroboam's plans at all. As Solomon had made an idol of women, Jeroboam's idol is going to be political power and holding on to it. And therefore, he's going to he's going to make religion a a plaything for his political power. Jeroboam, nonetheless, is going to be used as God's punishment, his chastening for the sins of Solomon. But there is mercy still, as I said. The kingdom will not be destroyed. The Lord says, and to his son I will give one tribe. Eventually, it's kind of the united tribe of Judah and Benjamin, that my servant David may always have a lamp. The lampstand that indicates the presence of the Lord within the temple was to be kept burning at all times to indicate the presence of the Lord there. The Lord saying, I'm not going to desert the family of David. I'm not going to desert his, his line. And we know that is because the Messiah would come from that line. It was a promise that had been made in eternity past and will extend into eternity future. That Jesus Christ. Would be the Redeemer of the nations. But for that to happen, David and his family still had to endure. Although they would be afflicted and would be chastened, yet the Lord would not desert them entirely. But the Lord had warned, even as he had made this promise back in 2 Samuel 7 to David, that from him would come a king who would reign forever. Nonetheless, he said that when David's descendants rebelled against him. There would be discipline, it happens. And that's something, brothers and sisters, that we need to remember. That if we are the Lord's and we sin, and we sin willfully, chastening will come from the hand of the Lord. Inevitably it does. Sometimes it'll be that internal chastening of a bad conscience. You've experienced that, right? When the Lord has been trying to get your attention and he takes away your sleep, that kind of thing. Or it can come through outward chastening as the Lord is trying to move you into the right channel. Why does he do that? Because he hates you? No, because he loves you. That's why a good parent, and we've forgotten that, haven't we, in our, in our society. We chasten our children because we want to move them into the right channel. Okay, my son, there are two paths you can walk down. There's the path of wisdom and the path of folly. The path of folly leads to destruction in this world and eternal destruction in the next. The path of wisdom leads to eternal life and happiness. Choose the path of wisdom. Oh, no, you're making the wrong choice, son. Let me help you (laughs) to choose the right path. Now, we we can't obviously change the hearts of our children. Would that we could? We can't force them to walk in the king's highway, but we can show them, and we can chasten them, and we can be instruments, hopefully, in their deliverance. So God's redemptive plans must continue. The house of David must continue until Christ. Now, getting back to that initial question, though, what about Solomon? Was he saved or damned when he died? I believe that though Solomon backslid, and that egregiously, I believe that at some point he returned before it was too late. I believe that the love of Christ would not let him go either either that eventually he did return, because he honestly loved God. At one point, he loved God. And to love God requires a working of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And I would like to think that the old Solomon, writing in Ecclesiastes, that book about the vanities of this life, that when he summed up in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. But that was the result of chastening in his own life. That he concluded that his folly, his vanity, his idolatry had been wrong from the very beginning. I believe that... His situation was rather like what Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 3.11. There he talks about the foundation that we're to build on, and that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And by our good works, we build either with with gold and precious things, or we build with wood, hay, and stubble. Solomon turned at some point in his life from building with gold and precious things to building with wood, hay, and stubble. And I believe that as the saying goes, he was saved yet as through fire. So he did make it into the kingdom, but just barely. Now, what grieves me is that there are so many people who think that Solomon, the way that Solomon was saved, if, as I believe he was saved, is the way we should go as well. You know, let's just try to barely get into the kingdom (laughs) to be saved as through fire. I'm going to love the Lord, but I'm going to have my own way. I'm going to sin as much as I can possibly, quote, get away with, remembering that nobody really ever gets away with anything and that there are consequences to our sins. Those who plan on also being barely saved usually end up eternally unsaved, especially if their plan is, and I see this happening all the time, okay, I, I know what I was told as a child. I know what's been preached from the pulpit. I've heard these things. I know they ring true. I can't make a good argument for why they aren't. I'm just going to deny them for a long time, enjoy the sins that I really enjoy, and then, miraculously, I'm suddenly going to set those sins aside and I'm going to obey the Lord just before I die. In the the early Middle Ages, men would put off being baptized because they saw baptism as the labor of regeneration, as the moment in which they were cleansed of their sins, and they wanted as many sins as possible to be cleansed away, so they put it off and put it off and put it off, and as a result, some of them died unbaptized. Well, brothers and sisters, dying unbaptized is one thing, Dying unsaved, having never really turned to the Lord, having not loved Him, dying in your sins and trespasses. The worst place to go to hell from is the church, because you're not sinning in ignorance. If you're sitting here listening to me, you've heard the gospel in its outlines, not perfectly, not the best presentation possible. I'm sorry George Whitfield was not able to make it. John MacArthur was booked this morning as well, I checked. But nonetheless, you have heard the gospel. And I can say this in truth, your blood will be on your own hands if you do not obey it. And the worst place to go from, to hell, is the church, from the assembly. So what of us? We talk about Solomon, we can talk about his failings all day long, yes, but what of us? Let me ask you a simple question. I was asked by, by the preacher at the uh, presbytery, uh, Neil Stewart. He preached an amazingly convicting sermon. I, I wish I could just chop-shop it or play it, and you know, step back and... And let you listen. But he asked an important question. It's where do we find our joy? And it's tied to the state of our hearts. What is it that we want? Where should we find our joy? In the only place where that joy is real and lasting. Not a counterfeit that passes away. We should find our joy in the Lord. You remember what Solomon's father David wrote. He said, be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When you think of all that the Lord has done for you, the blessings that he's given you, that he took you a sinner who was completely unworthy of salvation and that he moved you into his own camp, that he took away your filthy rags, that were attempts at righteousness, he cleansed you from your sin, he gave his own beloved son for you and he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you and no matter what the world does to you, no matter how men betray you, I never will. Joy should be the response. I will love you with a steadfast love that's unfailing, not just in time, but into eternity. I will do that for you. That should be a cause of joy. Worship should be a normal response from your heart to someone who's done all that for you at such a great cost. And no matter what your circumstances are, it should still be joy that is the the predominating feature in your heart. Even if you go through the times of melancholy, times where of confusion, times where you do feel like there's a great cloud between you and God in your prayers. Even in those in the midst of that, you should still be able to summon that well of joy that comes from knowing the Lord lives within you. What did Paul say? And he's writing from a prison when he says this worst circumstances for a citizen of Rome possible, looking forward to possibly dying. He writes in Philippians 3.1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write these things, these same things to you is not tedious. He's writing about the gospel again. Christians love to hear the gospel. Don't you love to hear the gospel again? And don't you need reminders? I need reminders of the gospel because I get off that, the, the right track and start thinking, you know, it's by righteousness in my works and all that stupidity, that I'm going to be saved. He writes, for you it is not tedious, but uh, things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, God's people, the ecclesia, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. If you look at Philippians, and if you've got a Bible app, you can do this simply. Just type in the word rejoice. See how many times the man in jail Said, rejoice, 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 to the people of God. Not because your circumstances are great, not because everybody loves you, but because of what God has done for you. Now, for too many professing Christians, I find what <laughs> happens is there's that, ino- that initial. It's, it's like with what happened with David. There's the initial joy of our salvation. But then we, we begin to neglect the means of grace. Stay away from the people of God. Not read the Bible as much as we should. Not pray. Not seek spiritual counsel. Not go amongst the wise. Not enter into communion with our brothers and sisters and attend Bible studies. And do all of those things we know will make us strong in the faith. Instead, we begin to get entrapped by the world and all of the different sinful things. The vanity fair that we dwell in. And what happens? We, we begin to sample different sins and the pleasures that we get them, and, and then suddenly our joy is found in, in an endorphin or dopamine rush, and we have to have it again, whether it's drugs or sex or, or gaming all the time. The thrill for Solomon after a while was women. He couldn't get enough. Now, there are probably many people who are thinking, well, I'm, I'm okay. I, uh, as I said before, I only have uh, one wife or no wife, and uh, certainly not a thousand, but I remember I was speaking to a, a pastor, and he made a comment that, that struck me it, 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 in one of those, wow, I wish I thought of that kind of ways. He, he said, I preach to young men, and I know they've seen more naked women than Solomon. And I'm trying to tell them to find their joy in the Lord, and they're just waiting for their next fix. And he said, I watch the gospel bouncing off of them and they're impatient and they've got to get back or they want to be with their clan buddies gaming, gaming, gaming. I need the hit, I need the hit, I need the hit. I need the counter for joy to keep me going. And after a while, (coughs) spiritual things become almost unintelligible to these people. He said, it's interesting. I talked to, yes, they've seen more naked women than Solomon, but they have no idea how to talk to a real one.'" It's a terrible, terrible situation. Now, I, I say that of the young men and how they're always looking for the next fix, but you, you don't get off the hook, girls. I'm sorry. I, I would add that there are women, I dare say, within this congregation who have seen more dances, more leisure, more vanity, more things to covet, or I'm sorry, I'm, using, I'm an old guy, I'm using both my hands, <laughs> than Solomon, would have seen in his lifetime, maybe in one year, you go through, oh, I wish I was oh, look at me. Oh, my... uh... <laughs> Does he like me? <laughs> but the more there's this, the more the joy of our salvation recedes, and we begin to become dependent. I read a study, uh, I'm just saying this in passing, that And it it, it proves something. Every study I see proves something, that the counterfeit joys that the world offer us, what do they make us ultimately? Miserable. Those girls who are spending every waking hour doing this are miserable. Study after study. Instagram and Facebook, actually commissioned studies, found that out, that they become suicidal, they become depressed, and so on. The more time they spend online, the less time they spend sleeping, and the more discontent they are every single day. And yet, the more they can't get away from it, and because they want to sell their product, they hide that and they pretend it's okay, it's normal. Or have you ever seen that ridiculous ad? They'll they'll advertise a casino, and then for gambling problems, dial. We know what you're doing. You're not selling help. You're selling ruin. And unfortunately, that's what social media and all those other things are doing. They're counterfeits. What do we do when we recognize that's the case? We do what we don't read about Solomon doing. We repent. I know I I do this all the time, and I apologize. It's Andy Ruins movies and Andy Ruins books, and now it's going to be Andy Ruins operas. We went to uh, an opera on Friday, uh, Don Giovanni. And the way Don Giovanni ends, here we go, is that uh, the man that he murdered, Il Comandante, comes back as a spirit, as this this terrifying ghost figure. And the interesting thing is, he doesn't just grab Don Giovanni and drag him down to hell at that point in time. Don Giovanni is a a modern Casanova. What was his great, his desire was woman after woman after woman after woman. He betrays them all and he wants them all and so on. So Il Comandante comes and do you know what he says again and again to him? Repent. And what does Don Giovanni say? No, 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 until he goes to hell. There are so many Christians, and we look at that, and we're on the stage, we're like, Don't Giovanni, you're an idiot, come on. They keep telling you, it's the end, the time is short, you gotta repent, you gotta repent, do it now, we're all like, no, come on, you're a jerk anyway, we've watched you, you don't deserve this, so repent, take the mercy that God is showing you. What do I do every Sunday? I stand up here and I say, repent, 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 repent. You're a sinner. You stand, as Jonathan Edwards put it so very well, on a rotten floor and beneath it is fire. And the only thing that's stopping you from falling into hell right now is God. I didn't tell you. I don't know if, did anybody notice. I said three things occurred to me, and I only thought I'd only told you about two of them, didn't I? About the echocardiogram. Greta saw it. Good. I'm glad somebody did. <laughs> the third thing <laughs> that immediately occurred to me was when <laughs> flip, 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 and <laughs> and <laughs> stops. That's the end of my time on Earth. You can't look at this device. And not immediately be struck by your own mortality. There's the thing that's sending the blood through your body. And when it stops and I'm not so foolish as to think it won't. That's the end. I don't know when it's gonna happen. But all of you have a pow, pow, pow going on right now. I haven't killed you with my preaching yet. But the day is coming when the will stop. And the and the, all of those things will stop. And then you will find yourself standing before God. And I have to tell you the dopamine and the endorphins and the whoosh, whoosh, whoosh will mean nothing at all in that moment. The only thing that will matter is your relationship with Christ. Please hear me now. Don't make the choices Solomon made. If you know yourself to be a sinner, and you all are, make the choice David, his father, made. Be willing to say, I have sinned. And turn to him. And embrace the forgiveness that is offered to you so freely in Christ. And then know the joy. I speak to so many people who are so miserable because they're trying to find joy in the things that the world gives. And it, it's never there. Never. But the joy of knowing Christ is eternal the joy of eternal life goes on forever and it's better than you can possibly understand those of you who have already been saved have tasted and seen that the lord is good but remember to keep tasting to keep going back to not let the world's counterfeit joys take over remember to hold on looking for that joy indescribable that comes when the stops for the christian that's not a moment Of dread and fear for those who know the Lord. It's merely a transition as we enter into eternal life. I pray that that will be a moment of joy for you and not a moment of fear or a moment of regret. Let us go before Him now. God our Father, we thank you so much for the warnings you give us in Scripture the warning to turn now, to repent, and to flee to Christ, to have done with our sins and our attempts at building our own patchwork righteousness. What are they but filthy rags. Let us shove them all aside and flee to Christ. If there's anyone who is hearing me today who has not yet come to you, I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in their hearts, that spiritual work that only you can do. Take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. Let them know you by faith. Let them close with you. And Lord, I do pray that you would do this so you would be glorified now and forever in their worship. And I pray that